0: Please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. If you would like to follow along in the pew Bibles in front of you, you can find the passage on page 595. Isaiah 35, beginning with verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that He would open our hearts to His word today. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as the people of God in this place at this time. And Lord, we know that your word is truth. And so, Father, would you speak to us today your words that we might be changed into the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. As I was preparing this sermon Out of curiosity, I decided to do an internet search on the secret to happiness. Well, as you might imagine, there is no shortage of experts on that topic. In fact, according to Google, there were 200 million of them. The 10 steps or the five secrets or whatever to a happy and joy-filled life. Well, I was tempted to read them all so that I could come and share with you my discoveries of how to be happy, but it seemed a bit overwhelming. And so I took a pass and decided to go to our text and to God's Word today instead. But in all seriousness, it certainly speaks to the fact that this is a real need in people's lives. Surveys indicate that only one-third of Americans say that they are happy with their life circumstances in any meaningful way. We are the wealthiest, most productive society that has ever existed. We have access to more information and knowledge than anyone ever has. We have more creature comforts than any generation that has come before us. More leisure time and more things to enjoy in this life. And yet, Depression is rampant. Substance abuse is everywhere. You have friends and family, maybe even many in this room, that suffer with the effects of the fallenness of this world in depression and despair. So what's up with that? What gives? Why, in our current circumstances, with so much to make us happy, do we find that a difficult thing to grasp? Well, around 2,000 years ago, as we've already referenced many times in our service and in our singing, a big choir of brilliant angels came to the earth and announced to a bunch of old raggedy, smelly shepherds, as we read about at lunch last week, That they had good news of great joy for all the people. Because unto us is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And as that baby grew into a man, we began to learn a little bit more about what the angel's message of joy was. We found out that God had promised many, many years before that this one, this child, this one who would grow into a man, was anointed with gladness. Way beyond what anyone else had ever had, before or since. He was joy personified. Jesus was happier than anyone who had ever lived, or whoever has lived. What a delightful human. Jesus must be. He overflows with joy, and he wants us to overflow with joy too. So what happened? It's been 2,000 years, and people are still unhappy. Was the angel's message to the shepherds a mistake? Where's the great joy that was promised? In his book, seeing and savoring Jesus Christ, John Piper writes this, It would not be fully gracious of Jesus to simply increase my joy to its final limit and then leave me short of his. My capacities for joy are very confined. So Christ not only offers himself as the divine object of my joy, but pours his capacity for joy into me so that I can enjoy him with the very joy of God. So the problem isn't with the good news that was announced that night in Bethlehem. The problem is that we're pursuing the limits of happiness that we can create ourselves instead of the joy that Jesus brought when he came into the world. God's people in the Old Testament were stubborn and hardened too. They were looking for happiness in all the wrong places. They were chasing after the idols of the neighboring nations, creating their own idols even within themselves. And as we've been seeing in this series through Isaiah, God pronounced judgment on his people because of it. But also as we have seen, even in the midst of judgment, God in his graciousness gives us glimmers of light and hope. And today we see a glimmer that joy has dawned in the coming of Jesus Christ, God's Messiah following the woes of judgment that were pronounced on Israel and the nations. Our passage today concludes a very long poetic section finishing with an amazing expression of joy. There was a promised future for joy for God's people that would be partially fulfilled when they returned from exile from Babylon and came back to the land, but it would only ultimately be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And at the dawn of joy... God would give his people beauty for ashes. Verse 1 of our text begins by setting the stage with a desert wilderness. God's people made their exodus, you might remember, from bondage in Egypt through a desert. In fact, they ended up spending 40 years in this desert, wandering aimlessly. Merriam-Webster gives these definitions for desert a barren land with usually sparse vegetation, a desolate or forbidding area, a wild, uninhabited, and uncultivated tract. Isaiah gave a promise that the future ultimate homecoming for the people of God would not be through a desert like at the Exodus. No, their ultimate homecoming would be through the glorious abundance of great joy. Look at the emphasis of joy bursting forth in verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. There's an exuberance here that is in complete opposition to a desert, to the dryness and the, the horrible nature of a desert. Jesus comes to his people with the joy of abundance exploding in the desert and wilderness of our lives. He's able to transform barren souls into fruitful gardens of joy. And as we journey through this life with Christ towards the promised land, towards heaven. He exchanges his beauty for our ashes, and we walk in the abundance of his glory and majesty. What an amazing thought. Not only have the desert circumstances of the journey been transformed completely, but God's people are being transformed from the inside out as well, because he has come to save. And in his salvation, he provides rescue for the weary. The weary pilgrims are strengthened and emboldened for the journey. The journey of faith can be an exhausting one, can't it? We grow tired. We grow weary. We know we're bound and destined for something greater, something more beautiful, something more glorious. But our rescuer comes to our aid. He saves us. And he transforms us. Reading again in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And eventually, after 70 years of bondage, God's judgment on Israel was complete. With Babylon now under the rule of Cyrus, the Persian, who foreshadowed Christ in delivering God's people out of bondage, the Israelites returned to the land, as Isaiah predicted. They returned to rebuild the wall under the leadership of Nehemiah. When they finished rebuilding the wall, they worshiped. Ezra brought out the law of God, their Bible, and began reading it to the people. In the midst of that, the people were moved to tears of grief as the law was being read once again. But the priests encouraged the people not to grieve, but to rejoice. To celebrate with a feast, to enjoy this time together. The time for fasting and repentance would come, but it wasn't now. Now was a time for them to celebrate the salvation of God, to be filled with the joy of the Lord. And Ezra declared at that moment that it was the joy of the Lord that was their strength. What a beautiful thought. We find the strength that we need to deal with the sin in our lives and the fallenness of this earth and the difficulties that we face in life. We find that strength in the joy of the Lord. His joy strengthens our hands for the work that we must do, and it steadies our knees for the hard road that we must walk. And even as the angel told the shepherds, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy, we can tell our anxious hearts, be strong, fear not, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Our God has come to save us, to rescue the weary. In verses five and six, we have a transition word. Then, when God has rescued his people, when Messiah came, It was then that the eyes of the blind were opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leaping like a deer, and the tongue of the mute singing for joy. God's rescue brings with it healing. Not only are we delivered from our sin, but we are healed and restored to former glory. There is a reversal of fortunes, there is healing for the broken. The goodness of the garden is restored. One of Jesus' very first acts in his ministry, at the very beginning, is recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. Before he called his disciples, before he healed anyone that we know of, Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth. And there he went into the synagogue, which was his custom on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll that was given to him was that scroll of Isaiah. So Jesus unrolled the scroll and he found the place that we call chapter 61. And he started reading. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, and sat back down. All the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixated on Jesus to see what he was going to say next. And he told them this, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, initially, they were amazed by his teaching. But when they finally realized what it was that he was talking about, that he was claiming to be the promised Messiah of Isaiah, they took him out to the edge of town to throw him off a cliff. But he escaped. Of course, we know from what's recorded in the gospel accounts that Jesus did indeed give sight to the blind, unstopped the ears of the deaf. He made the lame to leap and to walk again. Everywhere he went, he brought the joy of healing broken people. But Jesus' healing wasn't limited to our broken bodies. More importantly, Jesus came to heal our broken hearts. To provide forgiveness of sins through his sacrifice. To heal our broken relationship with the Father. To restore the joy of true fellowship with him once again. Verses 6 and 7 continue speaking of an abundance of water springing forth in the desert. What a contrast we have there. I'm often tempted to complain, maybe you are too, about the rain in times like we've been having in the last week or so. But then my mind goes pretty quickly to the places on the planet that have a great lack of water. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the abundance that water brings into our lives. Other than the air that we breathe, I suppose water is the most necessary element to sustain life. We can go a long time without food, but not water. On a journey in a parched desert... Finding water becomes the highest priority. And when it's found, it's time to celebrate with joy. No doubt Isaiah's readers would think back to their wilderness wandering in the desert. Because there came a time when they were thirsty and they complained to Moses, we need water. God provided miraculously through a rock. He instructed Moses to strike that rock, and water gushed forth. And that rock somehow mysteriously followed them around in the desert, and they always had access to water. The Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that that rock was a symbol of Christ. And in the Gospel of John, we have a story of Jesus' interaction with a woman who would come out to get water from the town well. She came at a time when no one else was there because she was a woman filled with guilt and shame and nobody wanted to be around her. Jesus asked her for a drink. and In that conversation, Jesus would tell her this, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus came to give living water to those who are dying in the desert of sin and despair. Have you tasted this water? Do you know this one, this Messiah, Jesus, as your Savior? as he quenched your spiritual thirst. He came to be poured out on the cross for his people that we might have a spring of spiritual water welling up inside of us unto eternal life. Oh, what joy is ours in Jesus when our Savior comes to us to heal our broken hearts. In the final paragraph, beginning in verse 8, Isaiah paints a picture of a road a highway on which God's people would return to their home following their captivity. And while this promise would find some fulfillment in their pilgrimage back to Israel, its complete description couldn't possibly be fulfilled outside of the kingdom to come, outside of Christ, the Messiah. The dawn of joy would mean the return for the rebels The wandering nomads and displaced exiles would find a sure path back to the joy of paradise. The way of holiness that only the righteous can travel. Not righteous in themselves, not because of their own goodness and their own good works, but made righteous by God. The unclean aren't permitted on this road. It's a narrow way. It's a singular path. It belongs only to those who walk in the way, and no one can get lost once they're on this road, not even the fool. No one can be harmed by outside forces. One of the issues of traveling a road in a desert was a fear of being attacked by wild animals, but nothing can harm those on this road as they journey on it. This path is for those who have been redeemed by God's Messiah. You know, perhaps, the very familiar words of Jesus when he says, I am the way. I am the road. I am the path to God. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're going to look at this idea of a road being made straight in the desert next week a little bit more as we look at Isaiah 40. As we consider the dawn of joy, let's ask what the practical implications are now as we come in to conclude here. Because the joy of the Lord is a wonderful idea, isn't it? What does it mean for me now? How do I find joy in the difficulties of life that I face? Life is hard. Christmas is a joy-filled time for many. But for some of us, it only heightens the desert of gloom and sadness in our lives. What about after Christmas, when all the temporary props have been taken out from underneath us? What then? And we're left right back where we were at the beginning. We must look to the one who lived joy out in his life. How did Jesus find joy in this life and in the suffering that he went through? He is our example. He fulfilled the promise of joy. Jesus did his most significant teaching on joy, interestingly enough, in the privacy of the upper room with his closest friends and followers. That's right. That night when he was betrayed, when he already knew that Judas had left to betray him, he had already predicted that Peter was going to deny him three times. He knew that the wheels had been set in motion for his crucifixion. And just a few hours before the anguish in the garden, it was then that Jesus talked about joy to his disciples. John chapter 15, verse five, beginning of verse five, we have this teaching of Jesus: "I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing." If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Then listen to this closing statement. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. People have happiness in their lives when they have meaning in their lives. We need to abide in Jesus in order to have meaning in our lives. Or as Jesus says, to bear fruit, to have purpose. He is the source of true life, the vine that feeds us, the branches. We must abide in him. We must be connected to the vine. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me. What's the answer there? You can do nothing. Without abiding in Jesus, everything we put our hands to is pointless. But in Christ, we can do all things because the joy of the Lord is our strength. We abide in Jesus by allowing his words also to abide in our hearts. I don't think there's any greater joy in this life in human interaction than to receive words of love and affirmation from somebody we respect and love. How silly would it be for us to plug our ears when somebody tells us that they love us or that they value us or how much we mean to them and that they're willing to sacrifice everything for us And yet, when we choose not to abide in the love of the Father by neglecting to read his promises in the Bible, we're doing just that. If you want to be happy, then let the words of God, who loves you, abide in you. Listen to his words of love. They will bring you great joy. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, these words that we find in Holy Scripture, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He also said that if we keep his commandments in the same way that he kept his father's, that we would abide in his love and experience joy. Obedience to God is not a drudgery as we often conceive of it and think of it. It's not just simply following a set of rules. It's the pathway to fullness of joy. Think of how Jesus demonstrated this in his life. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the Apostle Paul tells us. How is that possible? And how could Jesus possibly find joy in that kind of obedience? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that it was because of the joy that was set before him that he could endure the cross. Jesus had an eye to the other side of the cross, and that brought him immense joy. He saw the highway, the way of holiness rising up out of the desert of sin and death. He could see the redeemed walking on the way to eternal life in resurrected bodies. He could see the ransomed of the Lord coming to Zion, singing with everlasting joy upon their heads. He could see the end of sorrow and sighing, and he was filled with the joy that was set before him. What do you see? What have you set before your eyes? What will bring you joy and motivation on the journey? Can you see not only yourself, but for a lost and dying world? Beauty instead of ashes? Rescue for the weary? Healing for the broken? And the return of the rebels? In Luke 15, Jesus gives three parables. And they all have the same message. And they're all about something that's lost. The peril of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost or prodigal son. And in each case, the person who finds the thing that's lost, the shepherd leaving the 99 to go find the one, the old woman finding the coin that she had lost, and the father finding and restoring the son to fellowship When he returns home, every one of them threw a party when they found the thing that was lost. They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They told their friends about it and they celebrated. And Jesus tells us that the greatest joy in heaven is when a lost soul is found. What is it that makes the vaults of heaven ring with boisterous joy and celebration? When a soul comes to Christ. What puts a smile on the faces of the angels that can't be wiped away? It's when a lost person is found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Jesus could endure the unimaginable suffering of the cross because he saw you and me among the ransomed of the Lord on the other side of it. We say that St. Andrews exists for the purpose of helping people joyfully know Jesus Christ, love him more, and serve him better. The old gospel song says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. And while that is certainly true, we believe that Jesus has come, that we might live joy-filled lives now. Not just then. By finding our life's meaning in abiding in him and bearing fruit for him by abiding in his words found in Holy Scripture, by following him in obedience of those words that we read there, and by telling those who are lost how they may be found, setting before our eyes the joy of the kingdom of God as we walk this pilgrim pathway. What's the secret to happiness and joy? Here it is. Here it is. Abide in Him. Peter attributes these words from Psalm 16 to Jesus I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being. Rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is our pattern. The pattern of living a joy-filled life that our Savior has given us. The final words of our passage that we read today, it says, And the ransomed of the Lord, that's you and me, shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Pray that God would make you a joy-filled person Pray that God will make us a joy filled church. Not an artificial slap happy joy, but a real, deep, abiding, unshakable joy that bursts forth into song because we can't get over the fact that Jesus has saved us. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Father, would you enable us to receive our King this morning in joy? For those who have not received this gift, Father, would you penetrate their hearts and give them a new heart? Save them from their sin and give them cause for rejoicing. And Father, for those who have perhaps walked for many years down this path, who have lost their joy, Lord, would you restore to them the joy of their salvation even as King David prayed, that they would know your joy in their hearts and lives as they abide in you, as your words abide in their heart, and as they set before them the joy of your kingdom. Lord, help us in this, that we may indeed fulfill the mission that we've been called to, to help people joyfully know Jesus Christ, love him more, and serve him better. Equip us, enable us to do this, we ask in Christ's name, amen.